Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health Club, and enjoy the show. Hey, Valentina. Hey, Paula. And hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of Pretty Mental. Today, we have the privilege to bring back for a second time a colleague of mine and a psychotherapist that I deeply respect, Adam Funderburg. Adam is amazing and somebody that we thought was important to bring on at this time because he infuses his therapeutic perspective with a lot of mindfulness and Buddhist philosophy. He's deeply embedded into the Eastern traditions. And so he definitely gives us a fresh perspective for navigating a lot of the really tough emotions that have been coming up for our collective this year. And so in this conversation, we deep dove into anger, fear, and just learning to commit ourselves to a philosophical perspective of more positive emotions that can really influence and help us cultivate an overall wellness experience in regards to our mental health. And with that pretty mental family, let's take in a deep breath. And tune in. It is January 24th, 2020, 819 AM PST. We are calling on all of our guides, our ancestors, our angels. We are opening up the portal, opening up for higher alignment to joy, to abundance, higher alignment to truth, higher alignment to peace. We are calling in guidance. We are open vessels to whatever messages want to come through for the highest healing of ourselves and the highest healing of our community and the highest healing of humanity. The portal is open. Adam Funderburg, <laughs> welcome back to Pretty Mental. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, we're so happy that we were able to get some of your, share some time with you again and bring your wisdom into the pretty mental community. <laughs> well, we'll see. Hopefully it can be helpful. Uh, when you were talking about setting intentions, it's like that. that is my intention that like, you know, whatever we say and talk about can be helpful to people and, you know, maybe help somebody who needs it. I was talking to Valentina uh, and just... We were thinking how nice it would be to get some Adam wisdom into <laughs> the conversation at this point in the pandemic. So 2020 has been a crazy year. Yeah, it's been quite a year. Um, it's funny. We well, it, Actually, when New Year's came about, we, we took stock. And actually, I even wrote down uh, just all the different things that had happened this year, both good and bad. Like there was it was a mix. But it was um, I realized it was it was a lot. Um, and I wondered if it was just because I was paying attention more. <laughs> maybe every year a lot of stuff happens and maybe I'm just not. But uh, but it seemed like this year there particularly there was a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff happening. Yeah, absolutely. And and we know, you know, mental health became particularly highlighted this year as people didn't get to have as many distractions and outlets as they normally do. And depression went up, anxiety went up, fear went up, anger went yeah. up. Yes, I, I've seen a lot of that in clients. It's interesting in the beginning when, you know, when the, you could say when people first started kind of sheltering in place and some of my clients that were more um, introverted were, were happy. <laughs> They're like, oh, I wanted to do this anyway. But then I noticed as time went on, even my most introverted clients, it, it started to wear on them. And then of course my extroverted clients, it's like very early on, it was, um, it became more difficult. So yes, I mean, all, all of that stuff. Um, 
I'm I'm curious to see like you know when they this year when they finally compile all the information because it's hard to get the information, but just to see what's going on mental health wise. Yeah, there's I've seen alcohol use go up amongst clients. Uh, a lot of people are um, are using that to get through it, and a lot, and a lot of fear. Like fear seems to be um, just everywhere. I definitely I saw substance use significantly go up as well with clients. How have you been? Excuse me, I have a little bit of a uh, cold today, but how have you been bringing in you know the mindfulness Buddhist philosophy into working with clients through all of this? Well, kind of. It's interesting. A lot of the basic tenets, particularly of Buddhism, I think, are highlighted during this time. Like particularly um, impermanence, uncertainty, dukkha. Um, like the idea that you know things that people take for granted, you can't necessarily take those for granted. It you know you know when things are going normally, it's very easy to ignore. You know, even something as simple as going to the store and being with a group of people. That's something that most people never thought about that much. And so when something like this happens, it, it kind of highlights that even things we might consider mundane are still impermanent and things that we might take for granted are impermanent. And so it, it's good to have gratitude, which that's one of the good things I've seen come out of this. It's I see people more grateful for simple things. And even that, that idea that things they might have taken for granted, they now like maybe appreciate more in a way that maybe they didn't appreciate before. So a return to simplicity. In a lot of ways. And, and even a return to like, you know, spending time with family has become, although some people, you know, they, you know, that reaches a limit sometimes at certain points. But, you know, people are spending more time around, you know, the people in their households, having to be a little bit more choosy about what they do, having to be a little more thoughtful about like what they're going to do. So one of the, I guess, one of the positive things is there is some some intentionality coming out of it. So so that, that's been some good things to see. And, and even working with clients, trying to to help people to see that even when when you can't do necessarily all the things that you might want to do, still using your time in a valuable way. There's been a lot of meditation practice, at least in my clients, like sometimes they, for lack of anything else to do, <laughs> sometimes they're like, OK, well, I've got the time now, so maybe I'll, I'll try it. So that, so that, yeah, that, that's been good. What are some of the Buddhist perspectives on dealing with fear and dealing with uncertainty? Um, well, dealing with fear and uncertainty, it's kind of looking at the looking at the heart of it. And so this is something, too, I've thought a lot about. And even when thinking about coming on the show and thinking about, you know, like what I might want to talk about. In particular, I see fear has has grown so much. And and again, I don't want to like, you know, like bash the media for everything, but they, they tend to be very fear inducing in the way that they report the way. And sometimes it's, it's even not necessary. Like you can give good information without terrifying people. But the problem with fear, I, I see it, it's not that that fear isn't natural, like fear is 100% natural, 100%, you know, it's something that just that we as as humans, we experience. But the problem is it evolved for specific circumstances, it evolved to protect us, like when we're in immediate danger. And then when you're dealing with a complicated problem, it actually interferes. It's almost like it, you know, fight or flight is not a useful response when that's not really what you need to do in a situation, like when you need to be more thoughtful about the approach. So working with fear, like you could say the first step and like even in, in a Buddhist perspective is is acknowledging, you know, as, as always, like you first acknowledge what's there without judgment. You know, it's it's not like it's wrong that you feel fear. Or it's bad. It's just it's completely normal. But acknowledging what's there. But then at the same time, it doesn't mean that you feed into the fear, because a lot of times and, and you know, and, and, you know, working with people. And I know Paula's probably seen this working with especially clients with phobias and and OCD. Once you get into the story, it tends to build it up. It tends to create more fear. So like what might have been, you know, like a momentary fear. But once the mind takes hold of it and starts the story, then then it starts that feedback mechanism. Like, OK, now the story is feeding the fear. So at some point, people stop paying attention to what's actually happening in front of them. And now they're just seeing what's going on in the mind. And so part of the, the practice is stepping back. And, and one reason why grounding yourself in the present is so important because you can use the body to come back. So when the mind is kind of going on these fearful journeys or this fearful story, using the body to bring you back to what's actually happening in front of me. Is this fearful thing actually happening or or is it going on? Am I laying, you know, you could be in a very safe place and feel very unsafe because of what the mind is doing. So kind of using those practice, almost those grounding practices to come back. 
And a lot of people have physical practices too. It's good for like yoga, Tai Chi, any exercise. Even some of my clients are runners, um, even musicians. Like I've got some people who um, play the guitar and using that to kind of bring them back to this moment. I see that as such a useful skill with this. I found that in that exercise and movement helps at least to de-escalate it enough to get to a point where then I can be somewhat mindful. Because sometimes I find myself uh-huh. or I, I would find myself in situations where my anxiety would be so heightened and be, grounding myself was just crazy. I was not about like, how, how am I going to ground myself in the middle of this tornado? So then I would do some kind of physical movement and then that at least my energy could go somewhere else for a minute long enough to where I could be like, okay, I'm here now. I'm here now. I'm here now. But something that I also used to find really hard, and I want to know your perspective on this is when you're used to being in fight or flight mode, you don't actually know what is a threat and what is not a threat. So everything to you is a threat. The loud noise down the street, a loud knock on your door, a text from a friend, anything can just trigger that response. Definitely. And that and that's something I think a lot of times when people, you know, when they finally kind of make their way to the office, they've been dealing with this for a while, typically. And so it has kind of developed those habitual patterns, like, you know, that habitual fight or flight, even with OCD, to a certain extent, people get used to being alarmed, like in the sense, like, you know, even by their own thoughts, like their own thoughts become this, this kind of fearful thing that can come up at any time when they least suspect it. And so it kind of becomes this this kind of running from that. like, And unfortunately, that that's often exacerbates it because a, a lot of times the more you try to just to escape, the more it's this thing you have to escape from in the sense that it's kind of like I always use the example with clients of a tiger. It's like you, you may have successfully escape from the tiger, but it's always out there. You know, it's in the woods, it's hiding, and you never know when it's going to come. And so part of practicing the skills, it's to acknowledge the fear when it comes, but it's to see it's kind of to change the view of what's happening. So a teacher at one time told me this analogy and I always thought it was a good one. He said, so if you you know opened your door and you saw like, you know, a vampire and a witch and a ghost and you, you know, you feel frightened until you realize, oh, it's Halloween. These are kids in masks. So a lot of times emotion, you could say it's like a kid in a mask. It's not that it's not real. It is. It's, it's real. Like the emotion is absolutely real, but it's, it may be covering something. And so, so being able to to see it for what it is. See, this is emotion. This is fear. This is this is me experiencing anxiety. And to see it as that, as opposed to the extra layer of the story that's on top of it. And then once once you can kind of see it and the mind starts to calm down, it's easier than to see what might actually be a threat. Because the thing is, there are, I mean, you know, there are threats and there are things that we have to deal with, but it's easier to see it clearly and to make a decision about like, okay, is there something I actually have to do here? You know, is there something that needs to be done versus or is this something I need to, you know, I can let it calm. I can see it differently because an example I use is um, the perception, the way that we perceive it often creates kind of the way that it feels. And so so I grew up in a rural, you know, kind of rural Georgia. And so growing up, my dad taught me to catch snakes because, you know, because he liked them. And so and so I grew up not being afraid of snakes, you know, like so when I see them, even if I see a poison, I saw a copperhead you know, a few weeks ago. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm respectful. I'm not going to put my you know, hand in its mouth, but, but it's the idea of it doesn't induce fear because of the way that I see it. It's a curiosity. But my wife, Huda, she grew up differently. So it's a different response. Like we might see the exact same thing, but we have two different emotional responses based upon how we're interpreting it. And so you could say part of, part of working with the, the difficult emotions and particularly over time is sometimes you can, you can gradually kind of train the mind to see something differently. But that's kind of the long-term approach. Like first is kind of calming it down and, you know, and, and working with it. But then over time, kind of the approach is to, to kind of fundamentally see it in a different way, to see, to understand emotion in a different way. So that way, when the threatening feeling comes up, you could say it's not the mind trying to attack you. It's more like just the mind reacting. It's the mind trying to protect you. And so there's like kind of less of a kind of a push against it. Because I had one client that was he had OCD and he was he was seeing his mind as a demon that kept trying to get him. And while it helped him in the short term because he could kind of this kind of step away from it in the long term, it made it worse because it became this really scary thing that's in his head that was trying to get him all the time. And so he could never like it's this stalking thing as opposed to seeing these are thoughts and feelings and sensations. 
you know, it's kind of like kind of taking some of the the fear out of it and seeing, okay, I'm experiencing thoughts, feelings, sensations. You know, they may be unpleasant. You know, they may be uncomfortable, but that's what I'm experiencing. It's not a demon. It's my body's natural process. And so it kind of took away some of the fear, which then lowered that and then made it easier to deal with. So over time, hopefully you see like an easing of that. One thing in regards to fear, anger is really closely tied to fear. Has that been your experience too? I would even I would even go so far to say it's the same emotion, just a different side of it. Like in the sense, like you've got fight or flight. So anger is fight and, and anxiety is flight. It, it, it's like, and you could say it's different expressions of the sympathetic nervous system in response to threat. Even an animal that's like even a rabbit is normally will run or freeze if there's predators, but you corner it, it'll get very aggressive. It's like, so when there's no choice, sometimes the, the anger, the fight comes out of the flight. And you could say with people, they have, might have different reactions. Like they might've learned to be angry or they might've learned to be more fearful, but yet it's the same. And they can easily turn into the other one, at least what I've seen with clients. Like someone who's very anxious can also be very angry very quickly. And someone who's very angry can also be very anxious. It's like, it, it it's almost like it's, like, it's the, just the two sides of the same coin, I guess, in my opinion. So I definitely, yeah, I definitely do kind of analysis or deep dive into that emotion in particular right now because well after we saw the kind of the storming of the capital yeah and just everything that the political sphere has brought up for people's psyche this past year something i've seen a lot of on social media is anger and blaming that anger on the opponent political party It's something I've been speaking up about on social media a little bit more lately because what I see is that we we have a tendency to use anger to deal with people who are angry or to use anger to deal with injustice. And from you know my experience and just my own practices, I understand that managing those circumstances in that way actually ends up amplifying them. I would agree with that. I think that. You know, because anger is a natural response. I mean, again, it's like these things when you talk about like, like when you see things that you see, you feel are unjust or are or, or wrong in a way. It's like I think it's it's natural to feel anger. But like you're saying, Paula, that oftentimes you start seeing back and forth. I always have all these analogies, but one teacher I had it said it's like he said that if, if you have a present and it's wrapped, if you use anger, they're getting they're, they see the wrapping, but they don't see what's in the box. It's like, so you see what's covering it. And so same thing with with anger. Like when you come at somebody with anger, all the times you, you could even be making sense. Like you'd be, you could, might be even telling the truth, but they don't see that. They see the anger. And so the defensive re- response comes up. Like they, And so they're defending themselves instead of actually addressing whatever you're saying. So they're just going to shoot back. You might have even seen this. I know you do more couples work than I do. Sometimes you see that back and forth and like the, and, and they both might actually be saying something very similar, but it's like neither one is hearing it because they're, they're both mad. And yeah, it's that de-escalating of anger. And again, it's, it's not feeling bad for feeling anger or feeling like it's a wrong to feel it. It's more like understanding, though, but what's the most skillful way to respond? Like sometimes when I think about like if even if I feel frustrated at something, but I think, OK, if I'm going to say this, how do I say it so the other person hears it? Like, how can I say it so I actually get across what it is that I want to get across versus, you know, just get a like a a knee jerk response kind of back? I think people are afraid that if they don't use anger or they somehow surrender anger, that the injustices are going to continue. Yeah. And I I think that's the thing. And and I think anger and motivation, maybe sometimes they get tied together. Because even same thing with anxiety, like I had one client say, if I don't get anxious, how can I, what's going to motivate me? And I'm like, there are other motivations. It's like, and even anger is a motivation. Like it's a, anger is a great short-term motivator. Like even physiologically speaking, it's designed to be like in the moment of threat. It gives you this push that you need to either defend yourself or escape. But the problem with the long-term motivation is you have to keep it up to be motivated. And then it keeps requiring a target like it keeps requiring whereas sometimes if you can find like another motivation whether it be like justice or whether it be you know peace and freedom for all beings or like or whatever whatever the the motivation happens to be it's like finding something that also can give you motivation but without necessarily having to be angry and it's not again it's like that kind of thing like you said um making change sometimes anger can act as um 
kind of a push maybe or like kind of a kick but then but then i guess it's my opinion that then from that point it's like okay so but what's the other reason like 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 you know what's the deeper reasons that this also needs to be done or or like what's the thing that's going to sustain me and and then even just be better for you physiologically because the problem with with anger too it just eats you up inside too it's like even all that cortisol that's released all the time like your immune function your peace of mind and even just the way that you think about other people it's like it has its uses but then it's, it's like everything like like overdone it can be corrosive like over time and just let's just eat somebody like if you've met, I mean, I'm, maybe you've met them, like if you've met somebody who lives primarily in anger, it's like the way that they see people, the way they view the world, even the way they view themselves, it's not a happy place. It perpetuates its own darkness. It does. And and again, it's it's kind of like the, the whole idea, even in Buddhist, like the idea of balance, because, you know, it's called the middle path because it's the path between the extremes. And so the idea that, that, you know, it's not like there's no place for any of these things. It's like there's always a place for anything that we feel, but yet it can't be the only thing. Like it can't be the the dominating force. This is kind of my take on it. But a philosophical commitment to something is more important than the the individual emotions because the emotions are going to come and go. Like you know, and 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 we're going to feel differently. Like some days we feel more motivated than other days. Just normally. I mean, you know, some days we're tired. Some days we're happier. Some days we're not. But that doesn't change our philosophical commitment to it. Like if I have a commitment, say, to compassion. You know, I might some days it might be easier to follow that commitment than others. Like I'm have to say if it's a beautiful day and everybody's really nice that day, it might feel really easy to be compassionate. You know, if somebody cuts me off and says, you know, something mean, it might be harder, it might feel harder to be compassionate, but yet it shouldn't diminish the importance of that that commitment, like in the sense it's like whether it's raining, pouring down rain or a beautiful day, you can still go hiking. It's just a lot easier and more pleasant to hike when it's beautiful. But when the weather's bad, you can still do it. I love that concept of philosophical commitment because it can serve as an anchor. Yes. It's kind of like when we talk about mindfulness. So mindfulness in a Buddhist sense is it's extremely important, but it's one spoke of the eightfold path, you know, because the eightfold path in Buddhism is kind of all the pieces and ethics is actually included in that, which is philosophical commitment to, to values. And so you could say that in the best sense, mindfulness acts as a, it almost acts as a way to see, okay, what's happening and what's going on and hopefully give you the capacity to make a choice. But then the choice that you make is determined by your ethics. So mindfulness can't make the decision. It just gives you the opportunity to make the decision. It kind of gives you that place, that kind of freedom of mind to choose. But then what you choose is dependent upon, okay, well, what are your values? What's going to guide that that choice? One teacher of mine says, you know, like a sniper is very mindful. You know, like when you're a military sniper, like you're completely in the moment, you're focused on that. You know, you may or may not agree with what you're doing, but you're very, or someone breaking into your house is actually very mindful in the moment of breaking into your house. You know, probably their senses are very alert. They're probably fully in that moment, but you might not agree with the, the choice. And so the idea that like mindfulness is kind of a, this diagnostic to, to be able to see, okay, what's happening and, and what am I doing? but then giving you hopefully freedom to live your values, you know, so that way like unconscious reactions don't take over and like say maybe anger take over and then decide your choice as opposed to what your values are. The problem with that, that I keep seeing and that it's kind of, it's disheartening for me is that we want more justice and we want more equality and we want more peace and we want more love. And yet so many of us in the greater collective are trying to arrive there by blaming with anger the other party and what we don't realize is that in doing that we are actually perpetuating the energies that we are trying to move past yeah it's quite an interesting uh trap even uh Thich Nhat Hanh the uh the Vietnamese Buddhist monk during the Vietnam era he's a Vietnamese monk and so he was actually kicked out of Vietnam because uh he's, he's since been invited back but at the time the Viet Cong thought he was working with the CIA and the CIA thought he was working with the Viet Cong. But in truth, he said, I just want people to stop killing each other. <laughs> and um, but but he was very critical when people would stage like anti-war protests, but would be violent during the protest because he says, what are we fighting? He says, we're protesting war with violence that didn't you're creating more of the problem of what he saw because he saw the problem. Ultimately, that was the problem, the way people did that. And it's funny, every major religion has some form of the saying, you know, you know, hate doesn't defeat hate, only love can defeat hate, you know, and, and every 
major religion that I know of has some form of that saying. Sometimes people will take that as a like as a very philosophical thing, but it's actually very, very practical. It's almost like a math equation because more of this equals more of that. So like, it's just like, you know, if, if you're going to add these in there, like you're not going to get something different. So you have to put something different in the mix to get something different. And which is hard because the natural reaction of, you know, people is to like, if you feel attacked is to fight back. Or if you feel like, okay, they're, they're wrong. All right. I want to, I want to be wrong back. And not to say there's never a point in which you, you know, I mean, like I believe people can defend themselves. And I think that, you know, there's never a point where you, where you might not have to do that. But in my opinion, it's better to be different, to put something different in the mix. Because, you know, when you see people arguing, you know where that's going to go. And eventually it gets so back and forth to the point where sometimes people can't even remember who did the initial wrong especially longstanding grudges between people, you know, somebody might've started it, but at some point it's like, it's gone back and forth so much. It's like, well, I don't even, you don't know like, you know, where it started. And so, so somebody has to at some point make the choice to end it. So I guess in this discussion, in this conversation from a mental health perspective, I'm just, I'm interested in encouraging people to, and I like the term that you use to choose a philosophical commitment to a certain energy and how important it is to gauge our actions and to gauge our engagement with the world and even people that have different opinions from that place, if that's really what we want. The issue I see is that anger can be so addicting. Yes, anger, it is very addicting. I love the physiology of anger too. So it's a part of, so part of the neurobiology of it, which I find interesting, is part of anger's role is to make you feel powerful because it builds you up for a conflict. Even a timid creature can be very, very vicious in the right circumstances. Like, you know, there's kind of even the thing of like, you know, like a mother protecting her cubs, like a creature that's normally very timid can, you you don't want to get into that situation. And so anger makes you feel powerful. And that's a, that's a powerful feeling, particularly if someone doesn't feel powerful. There's a lot of even marginalized groups and people who might not feel powerful and anger is kind of a, an easy way to do it. Unfortunately, it, it's not a good long-term way because another teacher of mine one time said, and this was a martial arts thing, he said, feeling powerful and being powerful aren't the same thing. you know. And so you, you might feel powerful, but it might not necessarily translate into actual efficacy in the world. It just feels good in that moment. That's more like a high. Yeah, it is. You know, and again, it's it's exhilarating. And again, sometimes when I watch like like over the course of this whole year, you know, when people are protesting various things, you know, sometimes people go out there with a certain goal in mind and then say things escalate. But that's also very exciting. It's interesting. It's it's like on one hand, it, it can be very frightening. But on the other hand, it's also exhilarating in some ways. Like sometimes people feel very alive when they're in that situation. And And particularly during the pandemic, I was noticing because, you know, when people in the beginning, like they couldn't do many things. And so like this being out and being in these exciting situations where also, especially if you feel like philosophically, you're making a difference. Again, it can be very addictive. And then to me, teasing apart, okay, focusing on the goal of whatever it is that you, you, you know, you want to make the change in society, but then kind of also recognizing, but ultimately it has to be done without anger if it's going to be a long-term thing, like if it's going to be something that's going to be in society and it's going to make a change, eventually the anger has to kind of leave the equation. I've talked with clients about this kind of feeling, tapping into, and I'll call it the illusion of power through dominance. And anger Mm. is one way that that happens. I see it happen in dating relationships, but I mean, you know, we're talking about anger and kind of like the bigger political collective climate that has been going on this year. It's we tap into the illusion of power, but it's an illusion because the moment that we're not dominating the situation through this aggressive energy, then it's gone. And so then we need more and more and more of it. It's like a drug. It functions, these energies function in the same way as a drug, then we need more, then we need to conquer more people. Then we need to prove more people to get that feeling again. And I'm curious from your perspective, what's an alternative model to true long-lasting power because that's really what all that's really kind of what we're yearning for is we want to tap into some semblance of inner power and how can we arrive there in a way that's actually 
long-standing and consistent yeah. without all the highs and lows. Yeah, actually, I could see that. And and you could say like power and in and, and control of ourselves and control of our destiny, like you could say in a sense. it's. I believe the answer is a little complicated, but also straightforward in the sense that by controlling the things you actually control, you start getting a, a stronger sense of efficacy in the world. So the things we actually are in control of are our choices, actions, and intentions. And they can translate to the bigger world too. So it doesn't mean that we don't affect change in the world. Like we, we, we can, but it's always going to be limited. E- even some of the people who've made some of the biggest changes in the world, their changes are still limited and based upon other people. So by focusing on the things that you can actually do within yourself, it's easier to start feeling more like, I guess, less swept up in, in the, the worldly winds, like a less swept up in, in all the things that happen in the world that we don't really have much say over. And then you can start to see change because if you're persistent and consistent and practicing the things that you care about, you actually do see a change, like even in the way you feel, like even in the way the world feels. And that's to me, that's a more useful path. Now, that doesn't mean like some people's paths may draw them to take more action in the world. Someone may be drawn to like go into politics or be more of an activist, maybe as a professional or maybe be, you know, advocate for a certain cause. And that's that's fine. That's part of what they're going to do. But that also can be part of the thing that they part of that philosophical commitment that they make within themselves. And, And also that idea of even if you're dedicated to making change in the world, we have to be dedicated to make change within ourselves because ultimately that's the place in my opinion, where it most matters, because that's what's most going to affect us. It's like, you know, um, there's that old story. So there was a queen of a great land. You know, when she would go out, the rocks would hurt her feet. And so she said, I want to cover the, the, the world in leather. And her advisor was very wise. and said, let's make you a pair of shoes instead. And so the idea that getting yourself to where you feel less troubled by the world to me, is a more useful path than trying to make the world a certain way. But again, the balance of that is doesn't mean we don't take steps in the world. We don't like if we feel drawn particularly to work towards something or to work against injustice or work against something doesn't mean we can't do it. But just kind of focus inward first. And you can say that's kind of the, the Buddha, even what the Buddha taught, because even the Buddhist time, there was plenty of things going on in the world that are kind of some of the same stuff going on now. But you kind of recognize that that's kind of human nature. It's like there's no way we're going to change completely and forever these problems. Well, what the metaphor that comes up for me is another Buddhist metaphor, which is you can't plant an apple tree and expect oranges. And that's the, that's kind of what we trick ourselves into as we navigate all these collective challenges. Or it's like, you know, yeah. I'm going to operate from the energy of anger and I'm going to somehow hope that what's born of that is love. When ultimately what I want is love, what I want is more peace in the world, what I want is more joy, but I'm going to do it through scorning, mocking, and being angry at the other side. Like, it's just never going to work. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, you can't get what's not there. And, and a lot of times the peaceful, loving path is a choice. It's not that there aren't even reasons to be angry or even reasons to kind of think thoughts about someone else, but it's almost like so that philosophical commitment to seeing the other side of a person. Because part of the thing, which I've been trying to also get this with clients too, and and is to recognize the nuance and things. And because I see this black and white thinking, okay, this is another neurobiological study, but they found that when people did contemplative practices, like some, like usually some form of meditation or some form of kind of looking inward, they found that they actually became more empathetic, which was, was interesting because, you know, by looking inside yourself, people actually became more empathetic toward other people. But part of the, the, the explanation for that was, was the mirror neurons and the idea that if we see how complicated we are inside of ourselves, because, you know, Sometimes I'm disappointed with some of my reactions or, or I think, ah, oh, I could have done that better. Or, and I see that it's complicated in there. You know, it's, it's not like it's there's just all good or all thing going on. It's like there's a lot of things going on. And so once we can understand that about ourselves and accept it, it's easier to accept that that other people are the same way. It's like someone may have a very different opinion about you in, in a certain sphere, but they may feel just the same in something else. 
or even I thought it was ironic that, um, again, there are some people who are out to cause trouble. But when I look at like, so people protesting on the right and people protesting on the left, a lot of times they actually want the same thing. It's just that they feel very differently about how they're coming to it. But when you look at what they actually want, it's the same thing. And at least when I've traveled to different places in the world, it's like, you know, there's a lot of differences in people. But yet at root, a lot of people really want the same thing. And I I truly believe we're more alike than we are different. What we want is to not suffer. Yes. We want peace. We want a feeling of security. We want like a feeling of acceptance. You know, people people want to feel loved. People want to feel accepted and respected by people. And some people have different ideas about like how you get to there and what you do. But when you start looking at, okay, but this is really what people want. This is what, what we want. That's what I want. Like, I mean, like that's a nice thing to have. And so seeing the nuance in people and, and kind of giving people some of the benefit of the doubt, you know, and again, it doesn't mean that you can't hold people accountable. I mean, cause there are, you know, and does, you don't have to let people harm you. Like that's kind of the balance, you know, but at the same time, giving people the benefit of the doubt and seeing the nuance, you know, not every, you know, not every thought we have is just golden. <laughs> and, but, but not every thought we have is malicious either. It's like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of compl- like, a, you know, some people who've been really rough people have some really admirable traits and some really great people have had some traits that are like, not so great. We all do. We all do. We all do. As long as you're on human plane of existence you're dealing with the whole mix of energies it's just which one are you going to choose and in conversations like this one it might not be super obvious why it relates to mental health to a lot of people but it's one and the same because if we're operating from the emotional energy frequencies of anger fear sadness shame right those heavier emotions versus anchoring ourselves in a philosophical commitment to peace, love, joy, uh, willingness, our mental health is going to reflect that. Yes, I agree with that completely. That's why like even working with clients, even if they don't come in with the stated goal of, you know, some most clients don't come in with like talking about purpose and meaning, but that's always a part of the picture because what the things that you think are important, the things that you, you want to exhibit in your life that's the guide for your choices. So when you hopefully have the capacity to make a choice, like when you can kind of break out of some of these unconscious reactions and see like, oh, okay, I'm at the crossroads here. What choice do I want to make? You know, and hopefully giving people that freedom to make that choice where they can, they can choose what they want as opposed to being swept along with the reactions that maybe they didn't, they never chose. Cause I know a lot of people, you know, and even when we talk about stuff that people pick up when they're young or maybe experiences they've had in their lives, Sometimes people don't choose those those fearful reactions. You know, it's not like they sat down and said, oh, I want to make my life miserable. These are things that evolved based upon circumstances and, and things that have happened to them. And so when they can get to the point where they say, OK, I can see this and now I can feel where I'm being pulled. But what do I actually want to do? You know, they might feel that pull to anger or that pull to fear. But when they can see it clearly and say, but you know what, but I'm choosing this instead. And then the more they make that choice, the more you make that choice repeatedly, you strengthen that. That becomes hopefully a stronger and stronger pattern until hopefully that becomes maybe the default. You know, that becomes maybe the more natural response. The guy who wrote Search Inside Yourself, it's Google's mindfulness book, because he, he said, imagine. So he's talking about uh, like loving kindness training, like meta training. And he said, so imagine if the first thought you had when you met every single person was that you wish them well. Like that was your instinctive first thought that you had with every single person that you when you when you first met them. And he goes, even if you didn't say it, like, how would that change your interactions throughout the day? He goes, like, how would that change the way you looked at people in the world? And I can't help but think that. that, I mean, it would make a much positive. Probably your day would be better, too. You'd probably be happier. Well, even if I just kind of really quick put myself into that thought process, what I said, what I immediately felt was a sense of connection. Yeah. Instead of that separation that you were talking about, like when, you know, when people feel anger, they feel apart. They see the other instead of connection. It's it's other. But when you f- have well-being for somebody, you wish well for somebody. It's like that connection starts like you feel like, OK, we're more alike than different. And it's just it, it's a much happier way to live your life. 
it's a much better. But again, it's always a work in progress because we're human beings. We're going to get angry. We're going to get frustrated and we're going to feel all sorts of things toward other people. But that's the purpose of the practice in my mind. It's like, you know, we work with it. You know, we recognize that this is a work in progress and it's something we're going to be working on our entire lives. But hopefully it gets easier. Like that's that's part of the goal, too, is it gets easier and a little bit more reflexive. Well, the contemplative practices, whether it's breath work that Valtina does a ton of and, and guides people mm-hmm. through or or yoga or meditation, they bring us into contact with what's happening inside of us enough that then we can choose. And this brings up for me how addicted our culture is to drinking. <laughs> That's a thought that I've been having a lot lately. And that we've seen it go up significantly in the pandemic, right? Or any kind of substance. I think, I mean, I'm doing a, a training right now on uh, psychedelic psychotherapy, which is super fascinating. So I'm yeah. against substances, but it's just every substance can be a medicine or it can be a poison. And it just depends on dosage and quantity and intention. And as long as we continue to utilize substances on a really regular basis to almost like that's how we experience joy and that's how we experience connection our capacity for awareness decreases it does so then every then then having being able to commit yourself to a philosophical anchor like peace or love it's just physiologically not really possible to consciously make that decision anymore when our brain is constantly recovering from the effects of a numbing substance what would you say because something that that comes up for me are people who drink to ground themselves, quote unquote, or drink because it's what brings them peace at the end of the day, that wine at the end of the day. You know, because Paula, you're, you're saying you can't be present, but for some people, they really do believe, and, and it really may ha- very well be the case that that is the only thing that can ground them at the end of the day. Like, how do they start seeing that maybe this isn't the best long-term approach? I think by having other alternatives, like other like choices, because because, again, like alcohol does or, or any substance, but I'll say alcohol because I see a lot of that with clients. The reason why people use it is because it works, at least temporarily. It calms you down. It, and I'd be lying if I say it didn't feel nice to, you know, if there's a certain feeling in the body and mind that you have. But you could say the problem is it becomes an avoidant technique because sometimes people like say they have a difficult emotion or have, have had a hard day. Let's say that their day is really busy and and they feel stressed. And so they say, you know what, I'm going to have that, you know, that bottle of wine or that, like, you know. And again, per se, there's like, you know, having a drink, having something like that just on its surface, you could say it's not a problem. But if it becomes the, the coping mechanism, like the way that you deal with the world, it's avoidant. Like particularly that it's kind of a blunt force way of making you feel different. I take this and I feel different. But oftentimes it doesn't deal with the underlying problem. And sometimes by feeling uncomfortable, you could say that that's an important step in sometimes making change. Because if you can numb it just enough to get by, and I know, actually, I do know people, I've even got family members who like, it's just enough, you know, like they can make it to the next day. But when really maybe being uncomfortable and examining, what am I doing? Why am I? So if I hate my job this much that I feel like I got to drink every night. Is there a change I can make? Or if I'm in a place in my life that just is so bad that the only way I can cope with it is to do this, maybe being uncomfortable some is also a way of looking into some of those difficult emotions and and sometimes making choices. And also learning other ways of dealing with the emotion, because that's another thing, too, because sometimes if someone never learned other ways of dealing with difficult emotion, that might be the only tool they have, which is a lot of times even with alcoholic clients, that's why they're terrified sometimes to give it up. Because they just they don't know what they're going to do. If all of a sudden you don't have this tool, like they feel like I'm lost. Whereas sometimes teaching someone, you know, there are other ways of of working with it. Um, They're just they might be more subtle, take some more time. Well, the question is that, you know, when I'm working with clients uh, that are recovering from substance abuse or trying to. The question is like what like what you're saying, what am I running from? What is so tough in this reality that I can't that I have to fix this emotion, that I have to, you know, the other part of this is that we have a tendency to to deal with emotions as something to be fixed rather than something to be tended to. And so like you were saying, like if I end my day and I'm at my wit's end and the only way to deal with that is to to fix the emotion, I'm never going to know 
or really be able to tend to what is it in my daily life that is putting me in my wit's end? Is it the way that I'm relating to reality? Is it black and white thinking? Is Mm -hmm. it constantly cultivating a sense of urgency in the way that I relate to other people and to situations? So if we never actually deal with those mental habits and unhelpful thinking styles, but rather we just fix the emotion, which is coming up as information for us to, to grow and to elevate to new states of operating, then we're essentially, we feel like things are good and things are okay, but we're stagnant. We're not really manifesting the potential of who we could be, how we could really be engaging with life and our true power, our true power. Yeah. If it takes the substance to always fix the emotion we start losing subconsciously even faith in our ability to consciously navigate life in a way that feels empowering and is not dependent on outside forces. Yeah, I would say that because our society is very externally focused in the sense that if there's a problem, there's there's something out there to fix it. And even discomfort, like one of the things I've noticed is distress tolerance is, is not very high for a lot of people, particularly when they come when they first come in. When something is is uncomfortable, a lot of times people find it intolerable. And so they, they either want to take a drink or they want to, you know, get on their phone or distract or do something to kind of get away from that distressful feeling. But you can say part of that turning inward and sitting with it, like you're saying, you're tending to it, but then you can start to see it differently. So instead of this horrible thing I gotta change, it's like, no, I'm just experiencing some discomfort. Even from a Buddhist perspective, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral are not good or bad. That's just kind of the experience of having a body. So you can have an unpleasant sensation, but it doesn't have to be bad. Like bad is the judgment. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is the experience. And so as you work with and realize, okay, anxiety feels unpleasant and and purposely so. That's the way it was designed because it was designed when we're in dangerous situation to, you know, escape or to give us that energy. So it's kind of designed to make us feel uncomfortable because it doesn't want us to be in that situation. But when you can recognize this is unpleasantness, I don't have to change it, but I don't have to feed it either. I can let it come and let it go. And same thing with anger, same thing with other unpleasant notions. Like you don't have to, you don't have to beat it down, but you also don't have to jump into it and build it up either. You can, you can say, you know what, I can just experience this as it is, kind of watch it come and go. And then over time, it kind of develops a a different relationship to the mind. So instead of having, like you're saying, Paula, instead of having to like to fix it or to, you know, make it be a certain way, it can be what it is, but it's okay. And then the irony of that is the more you do that, it actually does start to feel more okay because you're more relaxed. It's like you you kind of, um, by not trying to fight it, the mind becomes less argumentative. So it's kind of a feedback sort of thing. And so you, you actually do experience more calm. But not because you're forcing yourself to be calm, but because the mind just stops fighting so much. And then you can make more conscious decisions. You know, I think Definitely. of it akin to trying to find a solution with a partner when you're both in a, in a state of anger and agitation. That's not the time to find a solution. It's not the time to make a change. You're actually, you need to step away and you need to find your peace and you need to find your balance and then revisit the conversation. But if we really want to find an effective solution... And so and we forget that that applies to ourselves too. It's like, okay, I'm uncomfortable. So like, what can I change in my external world? I need to do this. I need to switch jobs. I need to move. I need da, 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 da. And like, yeah, that might help. But are you, is it also maybe possible to cultivate peace and to cultivate these more um, harmonious inner states first, find ways to cultivate it first. And when you've tapped into a little bit more of that energy, then can you revisit the question? I agree. I mean, I think that's a that's a that's a good strategy because sometimes in in haste we might not make the best decision. You could say one of the problems with the sympathetic nervous system is it it evolved before we had a prefrontal cortex. So before we had the capacity to reason and think things out, the prefrontal or the sympathetic nervous system was around for millions of years before that. You know, and it kept beings alive. You could say it did its job to a certain extent, but now that we have this other option. We still have this very old system that sometimes wants to just take over when a lot of the problems we face in our society, it's it's every now and then we're in a we're in a survival situation. Sometimes we are like every now and then we might find ourselves in a dangerous situation. But most of the problems we face on a daily basis, at least in our country, it's not. It requires thought. It requires like we would be better served by having our full cognitive capacity instead of having it 
hijacked, including with even even with certain danger. It's like it's funny. It's um, some of my, my military people and um, and even with sparring and, and like, you know, and training, you know, like different fighting arts. You're much better served if you're thinking clearly rather than if there's anger or fear, even in even in a situation where there's there could be some danger because anger or fear might not be what you need. You know, you might need to think differently. Like um, they start about keeping your cool in a different, difficult situation. It's the ability to still think clearly when things are dangerous. And sometimes you might make the right decision. Well, there's that, um, that quote. It's, I think it comes from the ancient martial arts practices, if I'm not mistaken. But um, that the best fighter is never angry. Oh, yeah. Like you're my, my old, my, my old Kung Fu instructor. He was really, really good, but he never like he was always calm. And there was a other day, like in jujitsu class, like there's a guy. He looks like he's taking a nap, like he's rolling. He's you know he's got people in these holds, and his face is so calm. People are fighting and all angry, and he's just and, and he's he's just amazing. But because he's because he's calm, he can do what's needed. Like he he can think about what he needs to do instead of just react. A question I wanted to throw your way, I know we're, we're at our limit. I want to see if I can sneak this in here real quick is what is your perspective on how we can be there for people in our lives who struggle with really high anxiety? So part of the thing to be there is, is to offer your presence. So one of the best things you can do when someone's struggling, like say when someone is very anxious, you can literally be there with that person and kind of offer that presence and that calmness and not to judge them. And so that's another, because sometimes people get, and particularly if it's someone who's in your life regularly, sometimes people get frustrated with people and they, they might, you know, say, well, just stop doing it or stop doing it. It's like, if as much as you can, don't judge that person, you know, offer them support, but also help them to, to be mindful. Because one of the things, even with clients, so sometimes in session, like when someone gets very anxious, which Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't happen that much because sometimes like when they, they get comfortable in session, so you don't experience some of the anxiety. So um, when they're anxious, help them to be mindful by, by doing the practice with them. Like sometimes you can and I'd say to agree to it beforehand. So like when they're having moment of anxiety is not the time to bring it up. It's better to do it, you know, before. But then come up with an idea. Say, OK, so when this happens, like, let's try this or when this happens, let's try this. And if you can together. Someone said, like I had a teacher one time say, you can you can help someone by being their mindfulness for a little while, you know, kind of helping them and guiding them through that moment, asking them, say, like, so they might be thinking about something very stressful and say, well, what do you feel like under your feet? What does your breath feel like? What's the sensation on your skin? What does your heart rate feel like? You're kind of asking some of these mindful questions in kind of a slow, kind of calm way. And you can say in the moment, that's kind of a strategy, but then you can say a longer term strategy, too. So if someone's in your life who's anxious, supporting them, but also helping them to, to make decisions and to, to, I guess, find that philosophical commitment that, that has some meaning for them and supporting them in that. Because a lot of times people get fearful of doing things or they get fearful of putting themselves in a position that's vulnerable. But unfortunately, that's where people grow. Too. And that's sometimes like in order to do something that's really important, sometimes people have to feel vulnerable. So kind of giving them the space and support to feel vulnerable. There's such a balance with that, too, because you don't want to enable someone. You don't want to be someone's mindfulness so much that it ends up being a codependent relationship that they need you in order to feel stable. So it's like I'm just thinking about people who in your life, maybe it's someone who's super, super close to you, like a family member, maybe it's a best friend, maybe it's a, any kind of relationship, close relationship where they have high anxiety. And, you know, you also have to be careful to not get swept away in their anxiety. Cause sometimes when someone's so close to you, it's easy to get pulled in. Oh, hundred percent. And, and then that's, that's a good point that you make. It's, there is a balance to be had because it's also letting them experience the consequences of their actions and thoughts. And so, so boundaries is also important. So someone who wants you to make them feel better. And, and even with OCD, what they often tell people, and actually Paula might remember this from like uh, even Shala's training. So instead of making them feel better, say, I know you can handle it, you know, like, or, or saying, you know what, I know you can do this. I'm going to let you do this. And sometimes letting them experience it. Sometimes this sounds mean, but it's, it's, it's really not. <laughs> but taking people at face value, because a lot of times, People who in your life who are very anxious or who have, like, say you develop kind of a codependent relationship, you have a tendency to try to read their minds because 
you know, because you kind of get used to them. Oh, they say this, but they really mean this. Or, or yeah, they, this is this, but they really mean that. So I just say, stop doing it. Like whatever they say, take it as face value. They said, oh, I'm okay. Good. And then, you know, they may not really be okay, but it teaches them one to support themselves and also two, to be honest in communication. Or they say, oh, I don't really want anything for my birthday. Okay. <laughs> I'm not getting you anything then. I mean, okay, that sounds mean, but like, um, but I, I'm thinking about a specific person when I thought of that. Because they would always say they never wanted it. <laughs> but then they really did. And so people had to kind of read their mind to see what they really wanted. And I'm like, okay, so we're all going to play this game until someone stops playing it. And, you know, and do it in a loving way. You can say, oh, yeah, you know, since you said you didn't want anything, I decided to honor your wishes. So, so kind of finding that, that balance, like the support and non-judgment, but at the same time, also letting them have the results of their actions. Because even the Buddha said, don't get between someone and their karma. Because when people make choices, they have to experience it to learn. You can help people, but at the same time, people have to experience the consequences in order to to decide that, you know what, I, I want to do something different. I see that with kids a lot. Like even when I see like younger people, their parents have shielded them so much that they don't know almost how to be distressed and then therefore do the things they actually want to do. And it's making them unhappy. I completely agree with all that. You know, it's it's a fine line between being that mindful support for somebody when they're like in the midst of, of the extreme anxiety, uh-huh. but then also kind of, you know, throwing the ball back to them and having some boundaries and, and reminding ourselves that we can't really, we can't really save anybody. Even if we want to. And that's the thing. Even if we want to stop it, like we can't. At the end of the day, having those boundaries while being supportive for people allows us to put our own oxygen mask on first, which is always necessary, and empowers them. There's a certain level of respect to that because it's saying, like, if I keep coming in to try to save you, that means I think you need saving. Versus here's mm-hmm. some tools, but then I'm going to – it's time for you to face yourself. It's time for you to, to figure out how you're going to pick up those tools and work with them. And that's when people have the opportunity to rise to the challenge. Definitely. Definitely. And then create self-esteem, create like a sense that, you know, like of control in their lives. It's become a running joke with the you know clients and, you know, but it's like balance is really the key to most everything. One of the quotes I like said, the opposite of a bad idea is usually another bad idea. And so, so it's in the middle where we find like workable solutions. And so the idea that, yeah, it's like finding the balance between support, but giving independence between looking within and looking without, you know, between action in the world and action within. It's like there's always that place. And you could say balance is an act instead of a place. And so the idea that we're always working on balance and what balance looks different in different situations. You know, sometimes people need a little bit more support. So you might lean in a little bit. Sometimes you realize, okay, now I've got to lean out. I've got to give them more. It's like, and so the, the balance is constantly moving. But you could say, again, that's part of your practice. In my opinion, that's part of the, the daily practice is thinking, where are we at today? Like, what do we need? What does the situation require? You know, do I need to lean in? Do I need to lean out? What do we need to do? Real quick before we close up, the question that we always ask, what is mental health to you today in this current place? Okay, well, since we're on the, the theme of balance, I'm going to say uh, mental health is finding the right balance within yourself, physically, mentally, and spiritually, and working on that balance every single day, internal and external. And so, so I'd say uh, perfect mental health is perfect balance, which is always an act and not a place. It's a practice. and But it's a practice, again, like, a, like one monk said, you know, it's really hard to do, but what else are we going to do? Exactly. Exactly. All right, Adam, thank you so much for coming on. We enjoyed this conversation so much. I, you know, I personally feel nourished and my day's always different when I get to have these Adam wisdom talks. <laughs> Adam wisdom talks are the best. They're all the nutrients we need to start our morning. Well, thank you for having me. I have a, I had a great time talking to y'all. I, I feel I feel I got my nourishment this morning too. So I feel like the rest of my day is going to be uh, very positive. Thank you so much, Adam. And we're going to add, I don't know if you're taking clients right now or not. Are you? I, I am actually, I'm taking, uh, taking clients. Um, I, I usually put a few open slots each week. 
Perfect. So we'll add your information to the show notes if anyone wants to find Adam and experience this Buddhist nourishment spewing from his mouth, then we definitely <laughs> encourage you to go into his website and check him out. Cool. Well, thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. We will talk to you soon. Talk to y'all soon. Bye. 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 All right, everyone, make sure to tune in Mondays at 6 a.m. EST. Los queremos mucho. We love you guys. We love you guys. Be kind to yourselves out there. Be kind to yourselves. Until next time. Bye. Bye.